approached Gary this morning and said, hey, man, can I use like a music stand to put my sermon notes on? Because they're, you know, I have to kind of lean over to see him. And he said, I'll do you one better. And if you've noticed, I look like a normal-sized human being right now. <laughs> now, I think it's only fair, Brett, that for the next couple months, you preach with a pulpit at this height. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, let's pray together, please. Father, we, by the act of opening your scriptures, are recipients of much grace. Lord, I ask that you would give more grace, that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would teach us the meaning of your words, and that you would call us to repentance and faith and hope in the kingdom of God. In Christ's name, amen. So today we're going to read what I think is a pretty complex passage, even though it may seem like a simple passage. And I think that's worth mentioning right at the outset, because the easiest thing in the world right now would be to read this passage simply, to sort of lightly touch on a few phrases without a huge amount of depth, to quickly apply it to our lives and to move on. I mean, this is a relatively small episode in the midst of a pretty long book about a whole lot of notable and exciting events and stirring characters. When you've, read, when you've got giants to deal with and battles and the rise and reign of David, the shepherd king, it's a real act of discipline to set aside a lot of time and attention to deal with what amounts to a bit of dialogue. But this passage that we're going to read this morning is an important moment for God's people. And these are important words so I think we should stop and focus for a bit. Because when characters in the Bible speak, they're always teaching. And this morning we're going to learn a lot from the words that men say to one another and the words they hear from God. I'm trying to get us to dig deep here because I think there's gold worth mining in these words. And I want to read them together. So if you'll turn to 1 Samuel chapter 8. Hold up your Bible when you're there. Awesome. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they, are re they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. 
according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so also they are doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and he will appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and his equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no. But there shall be a king over us, that we may also be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. Okay, so I think we need a bit of background. Because without it, it's totally possible to jump to what may be the wrong conclusion about what this story means. If you were reading this passage without any knowledge of Israel's past, or with just a hazy knowledge of Israel's past, you might think that the elders of Israel were wrong to ask for a king. They ask, and then Samuel's angry, and then God's angry. Therefore, they were wrong to ask for a king, period. Simple. But it isn't that simple. What I I want to show you this morning is that a real-life, flesh-and-blood king for Israel was in the plan from the beginning. The people of God had been promised kings, And the hope of the people of God was appropriately set in the king. Now what I'm saying is that the elders of Israel were right to hope in a king. And they weren't wrong to ask for one, not necessarily. In fact, the elders of Israel ought to have looked forward in hopeful anticipation toward a king who would protect and preserve the people. But something about the way they demanded a king was wrong. Something about their intentions for that king and about their motives behind the question was off. So what I I want to do today is I want to first dig deeper and try and prove to you not only that a king was and ought to have been expected, but more importantly, that a king was and ought to have been the hope of the remnant of Israel. And then I want to explore why the elders of Israel were rebuked for doing something something that at least on paper they were allowed and even encouraged to do. Does that make sense? Okay. So let's back up for a moment and start at the very beginning. I want to look back at God's promise to Abraham. 
Because this is literally the origin story of the people of Israel. You can't go further back into the history of God's people than Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons. Come on, guys. What I want you to see is that God promises him kings. Kings in Abraham's line, numbering among his sons. God will relate especially and uniquely to Abraham's offspring, and from him will come a multitude of nations and kings. Let me read to you from Genesis 17. God said to Abram, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So this is God's promise to Abraham about his covenant with his people, the people of Israel, the same people about which we just read. And look back for a moment, just toward the end. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. Now, okay, I get it. That statement right there isn't too specific. And we also just read that God will make Abraham's offspring into nations, plural. In fact, God promises that he'll make Abraham's offspring a multitude of nations. So maybe God is promising kings for the line of Israel, or maybe... God is promising kings for other nations that will come from Abraham's line. Maybe God isn't speaking about the nation of Israel at all. So if this, is, if this passage, if this passage was the only passage we had to work with, I think we'd be facing two options. Either we have just read the first foretelling of kings among the nation of Israel, or we may have read a prophecy about kings that has nothing to do with the people of Israel. So we'll just have to keep looking. Abraham had sons, and those sons had sons, and those sons had sons, and God's promise to Abraham was beginning to materialize in a stunning way. For 400 years, the nation of Israel, all sons of Abraham, ballooned into a vast people. And though the sons of Abraham were made slaves in Egypt, God hears the cries of his oppressed people, and they're finally delivered from slavery and miraculously escorted to the promised land. And on the way to the promised land, Moses gives them the law of God. Now surely if a king was expected for the people, there'd be mention of it in the law. And as it turns out, there's a handful of allusions to a coming king. We're not going to read them all, but I want to turn to the most explicit. Read along with me in Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy 17. Hold your Bible up when you get there. We're going to start in verse 14. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, 
you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again go that way. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor, house, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver or gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in the book a copy of this law approved by the priests. And it shall be with him. And he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Okay, so that passage to me is super interesting because it describes the situation we just read about in Samuel. But notice, this, this passage doesn't just predict a coming king, it permits a coming king. Listen again. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. You may indeed do so. When the people of Israel arrive in the promised land, at some point they will ask for a king. And not only ask for a king, but ask for a king like all the nations that are around me. That, for me, was especially surprising because the elders of Israel use these words almost precisely. And they likely did so because they knew that this was something they were permitted to do under a few, uh, under a few conditions. What are those conditions? One... They must be settled in the promised land. And two, they must submit to the king that God chooses. So what I'm going to suggest is that the elders of Israel did everything as they were commanded to do in the law and that they, mo they met both of the conditions required of this request. But I'm getting ahead of myself. I think what we've now demonstrated is that a king was foretold in God's promise to Abraham and that a king was expected for Israel in God's law to his people. That Israel would someday ask for a king and that Israel would be given a king by God was foretold and expected long before the story of Samuel begins. But I haven't yet made a case that the king was the appropriate, indeed the only hope of Israel. We know from Genesis that a king was part of God's promise to Israel. And we know from Deuteronomy that the people may have a king if they choose to ask for one. But what I want to show you is that it wasn't just okay for the people of Israel to ask for a king, but rather it was appropriate for the people of Israel to set their hope in a king. Do you see that distinction? Not, not just okay to have, like, you know, a, a Big Mac instead of a uh, McChicken sandwich, but this is what you ought to have, like broccoli instead of nacho cheese. <laughs> this is terrible. This is terrible. <laughs> Please forget everything that I just said. <laughs> I'm suggesting that it wasn't just permitted for the people of Israel to ask for a king. More than that, the people ought to have placed their hope in a coming king. Hope in the coming king 
was the most faithful and righteous place for the remnant of Israel to be. But don't take my word for it. I want to look back. You don't have to turn there. But I want to look back really quickly in 1 Samuel 2. And this is Hannah's song. You're welcome to turn there if you want. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. He raises the poor up from the dust. He lifts the needy up from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit inherit a seat of honor. For the pillar of the earth, the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them He has set the world. He will guard the feet of His faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, and He will give strength to His King and exalt the horn of His anointed. So I wanted to pick up at Hannah's song for two reasons. First, Hannah's song is a moment of great hope for the broken and lost people of Israel. Like Hannah, the people of Israel were barren and hopeless. And like Hannah, they needed God's rescue. So the story of Samuel begins with Hannah because this barren woman cries out to God for rescue and He gives it. She bows before God and she weeps and she cries out to God for rescue. And God delivers her from her distress. And that picture, that picture of hope, that beacon of hope-filled dependency is a template for the people of Israel. Cry out to God just like Hannah did. I see that you're broken. I see that you're abused and enslaved. Look, cry out to God for rescue and He will deliver you. Rescue is at hand, Israel. See, the hope of Hannah is a hope template for the people of Israel. It's a model of the hope that Israel ought to embody. But that's not the only reason I read that passage. I wanted to read that passage one more time because the centerpiece of the hope of Hannah is a coming king. The pinnacle of Hannah's hope is a coming king by whom the Lord will reign over the earth. The loftiest articulation of the hope of Hannah, that same hope that the people of Israel ought to emulate, the loftiest, most daring, most faithful hope of Hannah looks for a crown and a scepter to lead the people of Israel. This is a song of hope and praise. And it builds and builds upon itself. My heart exalts in the Lord. There is none holy like the Lord. God is her hope. The Lord is her hope. And He raises up the poor like her and the desperate like her. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. And then she looks forward to that day when the enemies of Israel will be vanquished and God will reign supreme in glory and justice. And this is the words that she says, the pillar of the earth are the Lord's and on them He has set the world. The Lord will judge. He will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to His King 
and he will exalt the horn of his anointed. When Hannah lifts her eyes to the heavens, she longs for the day when God's strength and justice and kindness are on display. And when God's strength is on display, on this day, when the poor and the desperate are lifted up, and when the enemies of God are vanquished, how will he reign? He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. The king, the fullest, most tangible expression of the hope of Hannah, indeed the hope of the people of Israel, is the coming king. And the most appropriate way to worship God, the most appropriate way to hope in God and his deliverance and his glory is to eagerly anticipate the coming king of Israel. And that hasn't changed. So my question for you is this. If a king was foretold and the people of Israel were given parameters within which to ask for a king, if a king is indeed something the people of Israel were expected to hope for, then what did the elders of Israel get wrong? Okay, so let's turn back to 1 Samuel 8. Everybody there? All of the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you, and your, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said it, God, give us, a, or when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all they said to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they also are doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So this passage begins on a dark note. Remember that Samuel has always been a bright light of the people of Israel. He embodied the hope of Israel. He intercedes on behalf of the people of Israel. And he calls them to repentance. Samuel was the good guy, right? And it had always been so. But we see here that Samuel too fights sin. Prophet, priest, and kingmaker. He does foreshadow the coming Messiah, but he clearly is not that Messiah. Look, judge is a role given by God. A man doesn't take it, take it upon himself to appoint the judge of Israel. It isn't inherited. But several judges have attempted to hand down the title judge to their sons, and it never went well. In fact, Samuel himself was called as prophet and judge in part because God had rejected the sons of Eli, judge of Israel. It's tough sometimes to let go of a thing after you've held on to it for so long. Apparently, Samuel felt that struggle as well. 
But his sons, like the sons of Eli, were corrupt. Now, I want to highlight this just like the passage does, because the situation itself seems to, at least on paper, affirm the elders' decision to approach Samuel and ask for a king. Samuel was an old man, and he had begun to withdraw as judge of Israel. He began to delegate his God-given role. It wasn't his to give to another. But he stepped back, and he started to hand off things to, to unworthy sons. So if ever there was an appropriate time for the elders of Israel to quote the law and claim their king, it seems like this is it. Because these guys knew, think about this, these guys firsthand knew how bad it got when Eli's sons took the reins and steered Israel into idolatry. They, they remember vividly the battlefield literally covered in the blood of dying brothers. And they didn't want to go there again. So as far as I could tell, at least at this point, and at least on paper, the elders of Israel were simply claiming the promise made to Abraham. They were simply following the instructions laid out in the law. They may as well have quoted Deuteronomy 17. Look, Samuel, look. Flip open your scrolls or whatever it looked like. When you come to the land of the Lord your God is giving you, you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may, you may indeed, Samuel, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. Look, we're, we're here. Condition one, we're in the land. We want a king like the nations. Look, God already said yes. Just go do it. At least at face value, the elders of Israel didn't seem to be breaking the rules. They met the conditions, and at first blush, it seems like a simple request in the way that the law anticipates. But obviously, that's not what's going on. Because God sees this question as an act of idolatry and rebellion. They have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt to this day, forsaking me to serve other gods, they're doing the same thing to you. Those words have gravity. This is what they've always been doing. Listen to this. This is the heart of a father. This is the heart of a husband. This is what they've always been doing. From the beginning, they've been rejecting me over and over and over again. This is just another way. I would be their king, but they won't have me. I would be their king, but they won't have me. They have rejected me from being their king. So there it is, the first clue. They have rejected me. That's a peek into what's going on. It's just a peek, and I don't think it's enough to fully answer the question. But enough to pique your curiosity. Enough to get you digging. They have rejected me as their king. What does that mean? I think we have a few hints in this passage, but I don't think we get the full picture unless we peek ahead, which we're going to do. First, look at the end of this passage after the warnings. 
But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but there shall be a king over us that we may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Three pieces of new information. No, we'll have a king and he'll judge us and he'll go out before us and he'll fight our battles. Fight our, fight our battles. Who fights the battles of Israel? Who fights the battles of Israel? God does. God fights their battles. Look how many times has God gone out before his people and vanquished their oppressors? How many times has he rained hail from the sky and sent crashing thunder upon his enemies? He swallowed up he swallowed up the world's most powerful army in a sea of crashing waves. God fights the battles of Israel. At least He did. That's our clue. Our second major clue. Hinting at what is really going on here. God says, they've rejected Me as their king. And the people say, we need a king to fight our battles to go out before us. Okay, so a few chapters, the dialogue is kind of set aside as Samuel finds and anoints the new king of Israel, Saul. But if you skip ahead, the conversation resumes in chapter 12. And what sort of announced to Samuel's retirement speech. And I encourage you to take a look there. Chapter 12 of 1 Samuel. Start at verse 8. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God. And he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them, and they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Asherah. But now, Lord, please deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jeroboam and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel, and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. But when you saw Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. <sighs> Samuel returns to the issue. He says at the very beginning, look, I've given you a, a king like you asked, but this is Samuel, prophet, priest, kingmaker, and he's not going to walk away without explaining to them what they did. He's not going to allow them to remain in rebellion without rebuke. And so he explains what's really going on in their hearts. He says, look, you cried out to God when you were enslaved and he rescued you. 
He sent Moses and Aaron and he swept you up and he placed you in a promised land. But you forgot him. So he gave you away to the nations. And when you got what you wanted and were left alone and vulnerable and the nations had turned against you, they took your stuff and they murdered your parents and they enslaved your sons. And when you felt that pain, you cried out and God heard and he sent rescuers. He worked in power to rescue you when you felt the oppression of strong enemies. God hears the cries of his people and he works powerfully and faithfully. He worked to rescue you, Israel, over and over and over and over again. But this time, when you saw Nahash and his armies, God, your king, wasn't enough. When you faced the armies of the Ammonites, though you could have cried out and seen the powerful work of God to rescue His people, though you could have seen the salvation of God firsthand, when you saw then that army in front of you trembled and you asked for a man, you traded God away for a man. Tall and handsome He may be, but He is no God. God wasn't enough for the elders of Israel on that day. They believed that he wasn't enough. Not enough for the Ammonites. So when the elders turned to Samuel and demand a king, they weren't hoping in the coming king of Israel who would reign in glory, a man after the heart of God. They weren't hoping in God's representative. They weren't hoping in God at all. They wanted a man to fight their battles. What makes this passage so tragically ironic is that Israel had literally just seen a brilliant, miraculous victory over her enemies because of the powerful work of God just a few paragraphs prior to 1 Samuel 8. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel. And the Lord answered him, as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. That was the day they repented. And they asked for rescue. And boy, did they get it. Brilliant and sweeping victory. But not on this day. On the day that the elders of Israel demanded a king, God was not enough for this army. Look, we're not told exactly why the people rejected God for a man at this moment. I can think of a few reasons why they may have decided this time they wouldn't seek God for rescue. Perhaps they honestly believed He wasn't powerful enough to defeat this enemy. Madness. Perhaps they didn't remember or didn't believe the stories of God's strength and power working miraculously to deliver His people. Foolish. But I don't think that's why. It's just a hunch. But I think the reason they're turning to a man and not to God is because God's power works only on behalf of those who would repent and run to Him. The rescue of God is only for those who would crush idols. 
It's just a hunch. But can't you hear that in God's words? This is the same thing they've been rejecting. They've been rejecting me from the beginning, turning from me to idols. In the end, Israel chose a man to do what only God could do. Unfortunately, this pattern isn't unique to the people of Israel. I think it's safe to say that much of the sin that so easily entangles involves God replacements. We fight to remember that He is our only hope, don't we? He is. Yet when we're in trouble, rarely do we run in repentance and faith to the throne. Rarely. How have you rejected God as your king? It's a good question with loads of answers. And it may be worth dwelling on, meditating on that question. When the armies approach and when the famine chokes, to whom do you turn? Do you demand a king who will fight your battles? But I don't, I don't want to spend a lot of time there because this passage ultimately isn't about what Israel did wrong. Ultimately, this passage is about the king, capital T, the true king of the people of God. Let me ask you a question. How do you... I mean, put yourselves in the place of the elders of Israel. How do you simultaneously hope in the coming flesh and blood king of Israel without rejecting God as king? It's a riddle, isn't it? A mystery. How can you believe the promise to Abraham and trust the law of God and embrace the hope of Hannah, all of which point to a living, breathing, flesh and blood king of Israel, and not reject God, who is already actively working as king of Israel. There's only one way. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as a, the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God takes on flesh, and God sits on the throne. Jesus Christ is the only King of Israel. Yet, yeah, we should heed the warning of this passage. And we should fight the God-rejecting sin in our hearts. When we're tired, or when we're hurting, or when we're disheveled, or when we're scared, we run to the throne, adopted sons and daughters of God. We run to the throne for help. Anything short of that is tragic. And next week, we're going to talk about that a little bit more. This is only the first half of this passage that we've dealt with. We really haven't gotten into all those warnings. Next week, we're going to talk about how sometimes the, the sharpest edge of God's wrath is His permission. Okay. How tragic. <laughs> how tragic that they said, No! We must have a king like the nations. And he says, okay. 
But this passage, more than that, is meant to stir our hope in the true king of Israel. God made flesh, Jesus, the shepherd king, who will reign over his people forever and ever. Amen. Men will fail, but Christ will never fail us. He has accomplished our rescue, and his power is ever working to make ready the people of God for a good kingdom that will never end. When we find ourselves surrounded by a terrible enemy, we run to our God King who is faithful to deliver us. When we find ourselves weak and hurting, we run to the King of Kings for He is faithful to comfort and to restore. When we are broken and dying, we run to Christ risen who has defeated death and by whose life we will live forever. Jesus is the true King of Israel. And in Him, you should put your hope. Let's, let's pray together.